oftentimes I'm talking to parents, you know, their, their kid or, or the loved one is coming right out of maybe treatment. They had maybe some college or no college and things are a little bit gray. And then the, the magic kind of happens is that when they get a chance to meet other young people in recovery, they're like, oh, so now I know what this can look like. I know what this can feel like. There is some sense of relief that I can like, I can let my, I can let my, my child go and be with other people and begin to trust them and see how that they're going to, how they're going to develop and see how school and college is a real protective factor. I don't have to worry about giving them drug screens. I don't have to worry about when they're coming home. They can have so much fun and have so much life apart from substance or other, or, or other life controlling issues. Those are real tips. Welcome to Hope Stream, a podcast for moms and dads who have kids with substance use disorder or who are in treatment or early recovery. I'm Brenda Zane, fellow mom to a child who battled an addiction to drugs and who almost died from multiple fentanyl overdoses. So I see you and I feel your pain, and I created this space for people just like us. Hope Stream is a space where we focus on you, your health, sanity, and well-being, And I also bring expert resources to help you navigate this scary and confusing world of teen and young adult substance use. This is where you'll find your tribe, and I'm really glad to have you with me. So let's get into today's episode. Welcome. I am really excited for you to hear the conversation that I had for today's episode. And I know I say that, um, pretty much on every episode, but I do get to talk to the most amazing people. And today's show is absolutely no exception to that. I had the good fortune to be connected with Keith Murphy, who heads up the collegiate recovery program at Rutgers University. And I, it took me a while to track him down. I was looking for somebody who I could talk to about kids and addiction and recovery and college and how that crazy puzzle might fit together. And so I was um, directed through several trusted resources to Keith, and we had an amazing conversation. And Keith is, like I said, the um, senior substance abuse counselor at Rutgers University for their recovery program. And he has a master's in counseling. He is a licensed professional counselor and a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor. He has over 14 years of experience helping people who struggle with addiction. And right now that's specifically with college kids. And he really helps them rebuild their lives. And he does that from the position of being somebody in long-term recovery himself, which is really special. And in his present role, he helps the students at Rutgers in their college recovery program. He helps them develop skills for just life in general, skills for college and beyond. And as a part of the Rutgers counseling staff, he gets to see students really flourish in a new phase of their life and become world changers. And as Keith and I were talking, we found out that we have a mutual love for a particular musical artist. So if you are short on time today and you want to skip the next two minutes, you'll miss that part of it, but it's a very interesting and fun um, connection that we had. And I know that you're going to get a ton out of this episode if you are a parent who is thinking that maybe your son or daughter does not really have 
an opportunity anymore to go to college because of the challenges that they have faced with substance use, I really, really want you to listen to this whole episode because Keith will give you so much information, not just about Rutgers, but in general about how college can fit into the life of somebody who is on a path to recovery, in recovery, um, and just has some really wise words for us. We also have a really interesting dialogue around some of the racial disparities that exist, not just in collegiate recovery, but in the field of addiction um, and treatment in general. So that is really interesting as well. I will let you now just listen in to this really great conversation that I had with Keith Murphy of Rutgers University. Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a topic that I have really wanted to bring to the podcast because there's so many parents who are in a position where they need to hear about some options. And I think what you do in collegiate recovery is just so fantastic. So thank you very much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Brenda. I really appreciate it. And this is awesome. So this is like we were talking a little bit before, it's my first podcast. So I've listened to many, many, many podcasts, so it's an honor to this for oh, this cool. to be my first one. So I'm excited. Oh, awesome! Well, I'm honored. What What's your favorite podcast that you listen to? Oh, geez. Well, actually, you know, it's funny. A friend just turned me on to uh, a Prince podcast, Sign of the Times, and I I binged it. It was like seven episodes, and I just listened to it um, like straight through, and that was like six hours of listening because, wow. yeah. Yeah, I was a big Prince fan, you know, for those that don't know. So Of course. <laughs> so to hear yeah. like all of the like all the background stuff and like how he put together albums and some of his personal history was pretty amazing. And so I that was the biggest one that I was listening to. That's so cool. I remember going to see Prince and just I, when you said yes I saw him. I actually saw him twice. I saw him in concert and then I saw him in a nightclub one night in LA. He was not supposed to be there. And all of a sudden, these purple boots walked out onto the stage. And I looked up and there's Prince. And he had just stopped by and like went on stage for an hour. (laughs) It was was one of the craziest things that's ever happened. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. uh, Okay. Before, I mean, that goes down yes. in history for me. <laughs> because it's funny, like, because I was just listening to yeah. what he would do. Like, he would have concerts and then have his band, like, go to other places and perform. So he'd have his security people scout clubs. And so he could just show up and play. So That's for a me true to, story. <laughs> that is a true story. Wow. So that actually yeah. happened. Yeah. That is wild. Yeah. He was a genius, absolute musical genius. No question, no doubt. Bar none. Yep. Fellow Prince fan. I love it. Yeah. When you said that, I was like, did he just say Prince podcast? Yeah. I got to find that. <laughs> yeah. And I could tell you some things, but I don't know if I want them on podcast or what kind of a fan I was. <laughs> okay. In, well, uh, who will do a follow in, up there? <laughs> yeah. Like in the 80s, like I didn't have any other black you know, music, musical or role models, because I grew up in a predominantly white space. So he was it. And then to find out that like, he was one of the first black artists to be on MTV and all the stuff that he did. And I was just like mesmerized. I'm like, he is absolutely oh amazing. The man, he was so provocative. Very, yeah, very controversial at that time. Yeah, at 
Oh, yeah. It was really naughty. But as I get older, I'm like, yeah, he's pretty tame now. Well, no, he's not, but he's still really good. Really good. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. I love it. Maybe you can give us um, a little bit of your background, sort of how you came to be doing what you're doing today and an overview just of what the collegiate recovery space is, because I, I know myself and I feel like I was pretty, you know, well-educated and well-researched when my son was going through his challenges. And I, and I really didn't bump into this. So maybe you can just tell us like, how did you get into it? And, and how did you get to Rutgers? And then what is that recovery? What does the collegiate recovery space look like? First, I, I need to start off myself. Um, the saying is I am a person in long-term recovery. And as someone I used to know, uh, we'll talk about, I, I'm liberated from uh, substances that were problematic in my life. I've, use an abstinence-based recovery model. Um, that was my pathway. So that was kind of the impetus that led me into where I am today. And I've been uh, in abstinence-based recovery for over 20 years now. So prior to wow, going- in, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Uh, prior to jumping into collegiate recovery about six years ago, um, I was working, actually had the opportunity to work where I went through treatment. Um, my life had bottomed out. Um, I had finished college and maybe five or six years after I finished college, I found myself living in Manhattan uh, with my best friend at the time, Chris. And Chris didn't have any substance issues, but on and off, even in my teen years, I had substance related issues. Um, That all kind of just came to a head after I thought I was a a grown person and I could do whatever I wanted to do, you know, kind of use substances with impunity. I'd gotten in trouble you know, breaking and entering when I was like 15, I was, I was stealing stuff. But all the while I could maintain this kind of duplicitous life or this double life where I could kind of, I was always an underachiever. I could do work in school, but at the same time, I always felt different for many reasons. So finished college, moved to New York, thought I was going to live my best life, but it re- was really, I was living out someone else's dream, my best friend's dream. And I got involved with using cocaine and heroin. From there, I couldn't manage, I couldn't pay rent. You know, eventually I had to move back home, but thankfully I got in another job doing different things. I worked at a group home for boys. Uh, all the while, though, I was still pretty much a functioning addict. You know, I always put functioning in quotes. I bottomed out. I stole my parents' wedding ring. I pawned it. My dad, you know, confronted me, talked to me. He was just like, hey, son, like, what is going on? You know, I was just like, I think first time as an adult, I actually broke down and cried in front of my dad. And he was just like, look, we got to get you some help, get you some treatment. He goes, I know somebody that's in church. He may be able to help get you into treatment. So I ended up going to a uh, a gospel rescue mission because I didn't have insurance. Not that I didn't have a job. I didn't have insurance. I was so unmanageable that I didn't even stop to fill out all the insurance paperwork that I needed. Had I done that, I would have gone to another treatment facility. So thank God for that, because that really partially changed my life. And I'll say more about that too. So I was able to, to go through treatment there and they had a, an internship program that allowed me to stay. And then I don't know how it happened, but the opportunity to get my master's degree in counseling was available for free. And I'm like, like, well, do you like, do you want to do this? I'm like, well, I don't, like, I'm sick of school. Like, oh, I couldn't wait to get out. Like, oh my God, got a chance to go to school. And I'm like, and I put it out there to God. It was just like, you know, if I if I can pass these other classes, because I need to do some prereqs, and if I get in, I'm going to go. And then I got in, and I'm like, I guess I'm going to finish. And then I finished. 
I ended up meeting my wife at graduate school and it allowed me to, you know, have a career and a life beyond my wildest imagination. But that started off with being willing to surrender some of what I thought life had to be in order to go along with. And I, I remember the conversation I had with my dad I was like, dad, you know, I tried your plan. I tried my plan. Let me try God's plan. No, shout out to Drake. And things kind of like got better from there. And honestly, much better than I had ever imagined or anticipated. So fast forward, I was working there for about 15, 14, 15, 14 years or so. And I had a student, a young person who had gone to Rutgers, ended up homeless, bottomed out, legal issues. Turned out he wanted to go back to Rutgers because he found out about a collegiate recovery program. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. I had no idea that this thing existed. So I'm working with him. I'm writing him letters, you know, signing releases to talk to the director, now my boss, Lisa Leitman, about this student and what he's doing and trying to get him set up to go back to school. Does all the work. You know, he goes, he finishes. Yay, congratulations. He's there. And all the while, this is like a year. And that time, I, I look for jobs. I'm like, oh, let, let me see what's out there. A position at the Rutgers Counseling Center opens up for essentially what I've been doing. I'm like, huh, this is kind of like what I'm doing as like a kind of like a recovery counselor person. I'm like, I'm going to apply for this job. Let me see what happens. I apply for the job. I get interviewed. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. They're like, they offered me the position. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I'm like, from that student, right? And then to finding the position in the paper and then getting the position, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Because, and you say eight years ago, you didn't know about any of this stuff, like collegiate recovery or whatever. Uh, six years ago, I had no idea. Now, seven years ago, I had no idea that this existed. Wow. For me, the person who turned out that was a, a substance use disorder that was so severe was an older person who lived on the street, lost everything, right. not lost everything, but most things severed so many relationships, had really just flamed out of every opportunity in life. I didn't realize that one, the disease, um, as we understand the disease, impacts and affected young people in the same way. And the thing that shocked me so much was that the consequences that some of these young people faced were just as dire and just as severe as people who were using for long, long periods of time, loss of family, uh, criminal histories, right? Overdoses, sex work, a whole bunch of just, you name it, just getting wrapped up in substance use. And I'm like, wow, I, I was blown away. The other thing that really blew me away was that it was happening too, because again, my prior experience was with older men and most of them older white and black men to find out younger white kids yeah. were in the same kind of peril. And I'm like, what's this about? You know, what, what am I seeing? So one, it, it spoke to me, one, how powerful addiction is, how deadly it can be for, for, for folks and how, you know, how much support and how much of a culture change we actually need in society in terms of dealing with, uh, with addiction and, and substance use mm. or severe substance use disorders. Right. Right. What a cool story. That is really amazing that so many things unfolded in the way that they did. And I'm curious about your your time in treatment. What, did you, at that point, were you ready for it? And so you were participating and, and really bought into the, to it? Or 
how, how was your own your own process of sort of getting to the other side? Uh, well, this is kind of this is me because I'm partially silly and I'm kind of I was class clown in high school, but I'm I'm a silly person. So when when I was the intervention was done with my dad and this friend from church, and God bless his soul because he 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 died recently, uh, drug related mm-hmm. too. Um, he he was like, well, look, it's a it's a nine to twelve month commitment. Are you prepared to do that? And I looked around, and they they went to my job where I was working with the group home, you know, with kids. Like I was I was an active person in addiction, and they're like, are you doing anything? I'm like, I'm not doing anything. Like my life literally is garbage. Like I can't save money. I'm starving all the time. I'm practically living out of my car. All the money I get goes to using. I'm I'm literally like my car is not even my car. It's a car that my parents gave me. I'm a 27 year old man. The phone that I'm using is the cell phone my mom gave me because she was scared to death of what was going on. So he's like, can you do it? I was like, yeah, I'm like, sure. And then my, my thinking was, was like, if I can make it through, this is when, you know, Michael Jordan was big. I would always try and get clean or stop using around the playoff time because I knew I was going to be in the house, but it never worked out. So I said, if I can get through, and it was September, ironically, September 1999. I said, well, if I can get through the end of the baseball season and into the basketball season, I'm good. That's amazing. If I can stay and finish the program and like go through the program, then I'm absolutely good. There's no reason for me to go back. And thank God that's, I stuck to it. Now, there were a lot of people that, yeah, that helped along the way. And there was a lot of good work that needed to be done and people who were very, very kind to me and showed me that I could have fun in recovery and that, you know, you can have difficult times in life thus far and not have to use mm. because of them. So that was a real treat. And and I'll say 12-step support initially was a big help for me because I thought I was crazy. <laughs> I mean, literally, until I heard people sharing the meeting, my own stuff. I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. They got the I'm same not problem. the only one. So I'm like, I'm in good shape. I, I'll tell this one quick story and I'll be quiet after this. There's a guy in program, uh, and I'll, ne- I'll never forget him. His name was uh, Bernard. We used to call him Bumnard because he would always ask us for change to use the pay phone. So I'm really dating myself. So we'd get our $5 grant and Bernard would always have his grant. And plus he'd ask us for money because he can call his girlfriend, girlfriends outside of the program. So we'd like, yeah, hey, here you go. Here's some change. And then he started to share his story and he goes, you know, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I said to myself, I'm like, if God can help that idiot, he can definitely do something with me. Was it wrong? Yeah. Well, it it helped. And that's, that's the part people don't talk about. There's a comparison part in 12 steps that says like, if they can get it, I can get it. But there's also a thing called survivorship bias where some people may not have the same resources to be right. able to hold on to it. And that's that's the other thing that I'm very consciously aware of. Right. Yeah, and I, and I want to get to that too. Um, wow, that's really so interesting. I, I just really like to hear how people's stories unfold because I think it it shapes who, obviously shapes who you become and how you interact with the world and especially with the people now that you see day to day. And so 
when you when you talk about collegiate recovery, I think it might be easy to think about, oh, there's this weird kind of group of nerds hanging out over somewhere on the on the edge of campus. But what does what does like real collegiate recovery look like, at least at Rutgers? And then I know you're you're involved in in more than that, but what does it actually look like for a parent who's listening thinking, huh, I wonder if that would be good for my kid. What does it actually look like today? I'll I'll put it in a word. It Honestly, uh, it looks like hope because um, mm. more often than not, most parents don't have a real frame or understanding that there is re- recovery. I'm going to be really corny, but recovery is possible for a young person. You know, uh, oftentimes, and I always say this, people in recovery don't make the news. It's people who are in active addiction uh, for good or for ill end up in the paper, you know, and that, that's a whole other conversation, too. And so they don't have an understanding that, wow, people, young people actually, one, have opportunities to change their use or eliminate their use and completely abstain and then go on to live full, enriched, vibrant lives that are absolutely full of life and full of meaning. So it looks like hope because oftentimes I'm talking to parents, you know, their their kid or or their loved one is coming right out of maybe treatment. They had maybe some college or no college and things are a little bit gray. And then the the magic kind of happens is that when they get a chance to meet other young people in recovery, they're like, oh, so now I know what this can look like. I know what this can feel like. There is some sense of relief, you know, that I can like, I can let my I can let my my child go and be with other people and begin to trust them and see how that they're going to how they're going to develop and see how school and college is a real protective factor. I don't have to worry about giving them drug screens. I don't have to worry about when they're coming home. They can have so much fun and have so much life apart from substance or other or, or other life controlling issues because those are real too. It just, it sounds like a great kind of safety net um, for, for those kids, because I know just from experience having a kind of an at-risk teen, you know, and and like you talked about, the consequences are so huge, um, especially once they turn 18, you know, as a parent, you're just Mm. so terrified of what's going to happen. And so I think knowing that they're, they're, within sort of a like uh, a safety net of other people where they're going to have some support they're going to have some some mentors and some people like you who have been there and you know know how it goes and can give them some advice would be really huge um but how like how do people find collegiate recovery programs usually are you dealing with parents or high school counselors or treatment centers? Like what's the path that people usually end up finding this? Because, you know, I, I think it's kind of like the best kept secret. Yeah, it's a terrible, and it's funny, that's one of the things I would say, that it's a terrible, terrible uh, best kept secret. Um, so, and I also want to give a shout out to one of uh, all the parents who are tenacious as hell in terms of like, one navigating systems that are not simple, that are very difficult. Yeah. And then you, you interlock the healthcare system, you interlock maybe even legal stuff. And then to throw another institution, education on top of it and to be persistent as hell, like shout out to them because most of my interactions come from and 
I'll say eight times out of 10, it's a mom who is just like, hey, I've got, I've got a child that's, you know, just looking at coming out of treatment. They're thinking about college or their counselor at the school talks to them about the program or, or their counselor at the, at the treatment place talks to them about the program. Can you help me? And what I, what I say is like, first off, like, I don't care about you going to school as I care about you being alive. That's first and foremost. So I see my role as one as an information broker. And it's my job just to share information to help move them along in the process. And I say this, I don't care if you don't, don't come to, you know, Rutgers or, or my university or wherever. I want whatever it's going to take to help you maintain what you've worked so hard to get. So, you know, and that's for the young person and then that's for the parents too, because more often than not, they're just looking for information. So the fine collegiate recovery is just, it's Google, it's the, it's, you know, collegiaterecovery.org, it's word of mouth, it's talking to other moms. It's because being in this right. world, like something happens, like once you, you know, are dealing with a, a child or young person that's in the grips of active addiction and they get a little taste of recovery and treatment, like you just, there's just like, a button that goes off, they're like, I, I need to find every available resource to help my child out. So it's intentional. I'll, I'll say this to be quiet. It's intentional that one, let's say, like on the Rutgers website, it's like it's a name and it's a direct, it's my direct phone yeah. number. It's not to some office. You're going to get my line and you're going to get me to call you back within at least 24 hours. Wow. That's my vow. Wow. And I say to text me, we have a separate email. And because, and I'll, I'll give a real shout out to uh, the person who had the position before me, Frank Greenagle. And he said this, like, you need to have a direct contact person. It's not fair. One, it's ableist to assume that everybody has the same ability, right, in terms yes. of reaching out to resources. And then second, you want to be able to put a face to what's happening. And you want to be the person that's associated with this program because people can get lost in a giant university system. And right. that's what they've been dealing with the entire time. Right. And so many runarounds, so many like, oh, well, you're denied coverage here. You can't do this. Do you have this money for this sober home? You know, and people, there's just so many transitions that they go through. So I, I want to make that process simpler and as easy as possible. So. Long answer to a very short question. Yeah, no, that's huge because having been that mom who's who is tenacious, but you know, at some point you just get so exhausted because what you just said is you're in this loop of you know people and processes and denials and more questions and more forms and you know it's just so so exhausting. Um, and I. And I know too, at least with the moms that I work with in our community, most of the kids, you know, they obviously have not been on a straight path. And so there's lots of loops and twists and turns. And some of them have been able to cobble together a GED and some of them have gotten their high school diploma in a treatment center somewhere in the middle of the woods in Utah, right? Like it's just all over the board. Is mm -hmm. that, how do you guys handle that? Because they're not coming with a, you know, nice clean SAT and, you know, this wonderful <laughs> high school career where they were volunteering and they were on the, you know, captain of the soccer team. How does that work in, in a place? Because Rutgers is, you know, one of the most well-renowned, like huge school with such a reputation that, you know, it's not like any Joe Schmo can get in there. How does that whole process work? 
Yeah, that's a very valid point. And, and even to what you're saying, we do have those students too, who are, you know, captain of the soccer team, so on and so forth too. And, and different schools do different things. Uh, like Texas Tech, they offer scholarships for students um, that are that are accepted into their uh, recovery program. And they're seen as also as in-state students, so they get in-state tuition. Mm. Um, and it's a different kind of criteria for admissions. Uh, for Rutgers, what we do, and I don't, I think it's a good way to bridge the gap. It's not perfect. What we allow some people to do is if they've had previous college experience and if they've gotten to another school and they flamed out at that school, but it looks like before active addiction took off, right, they were capable of doing college level work. We work with uh, one of our associate deans to try to have the student come in as a non-matriculated student. So what that means is that it's almost like a probationary period. They would take classes as if there's someone off the street, but they have the special dispensation, whereas they're allowed to to live on campus as long as they're part of our recovery community. Mm-hmm. The setback on that, though, is that one, they're, te- they're technically not students, but they still get all the rights and privileges, but they have to pay per credit. And if you can't afford to pay per credit, you know, yeah. you're kind of stuck. Right. So what I often do is that I really encourage people, it's like, first, especially if you're coming out of treatment, you haven't been in school for a while, go to community college. Right. Try your hand at community college. Understand the ebbs and flows of an academic calendar. Understand the stresses that are involved, how to communicate with other people who aren't in recovery, right? being in an atmosphere and environment where people may not actually care about your recovery right. and go to school right? because that's absolutely important. The world does not care about your recovery. And it's not, and, and that's sad, but at the same time, people are dealing with so many other things. They can't be mindful of that. Community college is a great way to practice before moving into a larger venue or a larger atmosphere, whereas you may be set up and not have the same level of success. That's a really good so one. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's so to me, the future in terms of collegiate recovery is community college because so right. many, and, and when I think about it, I went to community college twice, once before uh, recovery and then after recovery to get my prereqs to go into graduate school, I had to go back and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm back here. I'm in recovery and community right. college as a, as a 30 year old person. Right. I thought it was going to be weird, but it wasn't. Right. It was, I knew what I was there for. And that's also another thing, it, it helps focus. Like you, you get an idea of what you're there for. That's, that's another beauty of, of the students right. that are in collegiate recovery too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really, really good point. I think community colleges, I think they're becoming more utilized and, and more of an option, but I think a lot of people do overlook them with this kind of, you know, parents where parents are really bad about having these expectations and we've sort of, we have our mindset on an outcome, right? And we see our kid walking on the campus, <laughs> you know, with their backpack mm-hmm. and, and maybe community college doesn't fit that, that viewpoint. But I think it's really encouraging. If I had been hearing this however many years ago, I think I would have said, oh my gosh, maybe college is a possibility, you know, for my son when I really didn't think it was just because of his history and having a criminal record and having, you know, just all kinds mm-hmm. of mess in the background. But it sounds like, yes, there actually is a path 
for that. And maybe it starts with community college, like you said, to get their feet wet and to really get some of those credits. But then a transition to a four-year school actually is possible. Yeah, economically, it makes sense. And, and what, at least in New Jersey, what most people don't know, to go to community college, you don't have to graduate high school. Mm. And community colleges, at least in New Jersey, have a transfer program with the state universities or the state colleges. So in effect, you don't even need your GED. If you can go in, test, test well or reasonably well at, at community college, finish, do well, get your degree, your credits will transfer and you will be accepted into a major university without having to complete high school. Wow. That's huge. If the if we take nothing away from this, that's that's in itself just huge news because I I think there's such a discouragement that families feel when something, you know, a, a kid has kind of gone off track and now even if they are doing well in in sobriety or in in some sort of situation where they're where they're doing better, it still can feel so far off when you look at that college path. It's kind of like, uh, you know, that that's not for me, but it sounds like at least where you are, and I'm sure that's that's true in other states as well. I know California is where my son is in in the same as applied. That's just huge good news. Yeah. And again, I always encourage people to look look for it and then understand too what kind of funding is available in your state for people who have who've resolved their substance use disorders, you know, like in New Jersey, there's the division of vocational rehabilitation services. And technically because they, the state sees addiction as a disease, uh, they will pay for you to go to college to get your undergraduate degree because it's vocational training. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I'm going to put some of these resources in the show notes too, for people just as reminders of things to do some research on, because that's, that's really huge. When you think about uh, kind of a day to day, if I'm thinking like, Oh, what would it be like to be a, a, you know, maybe I'm a junior in college, I'm at Rutgers and I'm in this program. What is kind of a day in the life look like for one of the students in your program? Uh, that, that, wow. It's, I'll put it to you this way. It's as varied as any other college student. And uh, I'll say this, and this is, this is my, my revelation when I came back to work in higher ed that I didn't know when I was in, in college was that there's so many other things going on on campus that have nothing to do with using substances, period. The university does such a great job, and most schools do, in offering activities that have nothing to do with using or getting high. And it's so funny because that's all I could see when I was in undergrad. So the day in the life of, of a college, of a student that's in a recovery house is, is hanging out with friends, really BSing a lot, um, maybe doing a club sport, maybe going to uh, a meeting doing homework, watching TV, eating bad food, probably pizza, which I'll be responsible for, uh, <laughs> figuring out like what's, how to do as little schoolwork as possible to get maximum results, who likes them, of course, <laughs> who they're attracted to, how do they date, how do they hook up, it's, it's all the same. Maybe even on the weekends, yeah. like, hey, let's go to a party together, right? With the idea, like, we're not, we're mm, there to actually yeah. dance and have a good time. Right. So it sounds very normal. Yeah. It's, again, that was, you see, that was where the, the, the shift came for me. I'm like, there's so much to do. And there's so many things on campus. And in fact, 
what's ironic, there's so many things on campus, it's almost like it's too much. So, I mean, this is obviously yeah. pre-COVID. Right. Uh, we pray we can get through this, but yeah, that, that's yeah, that's what's what was available. And how are students? Speaking of COVID, how are students in in your program in particular? Because we know isolation is a really hard thing on people in recovery. How are the students doing, as far as you can tell, with with the changes in COVID? You know, I, they're doing as well as the rest of us. To be fair, um, yeah, someone I I. I admire look up to uh amy boyd austin um in in vermont at the beginning of the whole thing started talking like you know at some point we're just going to have to be real and transparent and let go of our professional masks or titles and just be like we're going through this the same way our students are you know like yeah. there's the, the 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 virus doesn't care about our degrees our age how much we think we know how much we've studied what our paycheck is our zip code our race, shape, size, or ethnicity, but even though we know that there's a great deal of disparity in, in how yeah. the, the COVID has impacted certain folks. Um, nevertheless, she, her thing was, was like, your students and you and all of us are going to go through this and have some deal of grief, loss, anxiety, transition for however long this situation lasts. And, it's, and we're just going to have to ride it out. And to your to your question, I think our students were amazing. I mean, it's them, it's their program. They're the reason why it exists. They're the reason why it does what it does. I, I'm, I'm really not the, the, the thing that makes it happen. It's them and their sense of wanting to be together is what makes it work. Now, my students have been on campus uh, since March 16th, since spring break of last year, because our housing is 12 month housing. Um, and the university, again, has offered them special uh, dispensation to be and to remain on campus. Um, and ironically, we are the only, Rutgers is broken down into like five or so different campuses. And only two of the campuses that we have have students on them at present. So there are about a thousand first year students on two other campuses. The recovery house students and another group of students are the only group of students on this whole campus. Normally, there'd be like 3,000 or so students on this particular campus. Right now, there are probably about 20, there are about 20 students total. So they've wow. got, a, so, yeah, so they've got almost an entire, <laughs> they, no, they literally have a whole <laughs> campus to themselves. That's amazing. Yeah. But and, and to their credit, they wanted to be there. They knew like home wasn't a great place for them to be because the support that they were getting while on campus, although it was Zoom meeting, they still had each other. You know, and like right. they were considered a household or family. And they said, you know what? We'd rather be here than anywhere else. At least they noted the housing. That's so yeah. cool. So really shout out to them. And it goes back to something else you said. Community is absolutely big. And I think that's the other thing, like uh, a parent or a student that's looking into collegiate recovery will find is a community. That's the ultimate hope. And it's different for again, for marginalized folks, and that's the a, a other conversation, you know, at a baseline, just having a sense of like, we're in this recovery thing kind of together is, is helpful. That would be huge. There's, it's so important for them to feel like they're not the only one. Um, and so I would imagine that would just feel great to know, like, I've got my group of friends and I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, like we can go to a party, maybe it's going to have alcohol there or or whatever substances, but 
we can still go and have fun, you know, at the party without using, but it would be, it would be helpful to have kind of a buddy <laughs> along with you to do that, I would think. But, yeah, that's correct. But, and they go together. Yeah. You know, when, when they did, and that was, that was part of it. And, you know, being in recovery doesn't mean that you don't have other life experiences because it's training for everyday life. Right. You know, where like, I'm going to be in situations, I'm going to be around other folks. How am I going to deal with this? You know, you don't put, put yourself uh, in unnecessary tests or, or troubled situations, but they know the purpose. Like we're there to have fun. And then once that's done, it's time to go. Right. You know? Yeah. 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 That would just, it would just change the whole sort of dynamic of why you're there and, and what you're doing. So really interesting. Well, you kind of mentioned, and, and this is something I wanted to get to, cause I, I stalked you on online and I saw a couple of your videos that are on YouTube of your, your different presentations and talking just about the racial disparities in not only collegiate recovery, but just in the kind of the whole field of addiction and treatment. And I'd love to, I've been trying to track people down to have podcast interviews with about this. So I was like, oh my gosh, you, you hit two, two and one, um, which is fabulous. But I would, I'd like to just talk about that a little bit because I think it's really so challenging. I mean, the stigma around addiction is so huge to begin with. And then I'd really love to understand a little bit better. And maybe you can share how the black community sees addiction and you lived this, you know, and, and you ended up kind of finding resources through your church. But what does that look like today um, for somebody, you know, uh, maybe a high school kid or somebody in their, you know, early college days um, who's struggling? Wow. Uh, well, part of the, the other part, I didn't, really expand on one of the things when I first noticed uh, collegiate recovery um, was that one, it was a predominantly white space um, because people who had access and who were traditionally served by collegiate recovery were, were predominantly white men. And so there was a culture, one of one of male of toxic masculinity, one heterosexism, just racism and just, general oppression that was kind of baked into its institution and people didn't recognize it because they all trafficked in the same water. It was just the idea of like, Oh, um, we're serving, you know, a group that's stigmatized and discriminated against on some level. So we're doing good work, not recognizing that those who are actually being oppressed were continually oppressing other folks to the point where people who had, who are LGBTQIA plus folks, and other uh, black people and people of color didn't feel like they belonged in collegiate recovery. And the other part of it was, was that it was the idea and understanding that people recovered in the same way. And what was often promoted was a 12 step recovery mm-hmm. model, which is steeped in Eurocentric Western philosophy that honestly may not have been accessible or even understandable for a lot of folks. So there was that big cultural divide and even the word mm-hmm. of recovery like means so many different things to so many different folks. And so collegiate recovery didn't open its doors to other folks. And the way that I looked at collegiate recovery is that one, it's a haven and it's, and it's a mission, meaning it's, it's a place of support for people that are there, but it's also got to do a better job of doing engagement and outreach for folks that they wouldn't ordinarily get in touch with or folks that wouldn't think to look at uh, collegiate recovery as a support because we, we know that one, 
um, LGBTQIA plus folks um, use substances at a greater rate, deal with greater trauma, need more additional support. That's, that's one thing. And then the other part of it is, is that one, people of color also use substances at the same rate as their white peers, yet they don't get the same kind of uh, help and support moving along. In fact, they more often than not, substance use becomes more severe later on in life. And so those, those issues are resolved much later. But, and I wonder how many people would benefit from being exposed to collegiate recovery if they knew about collegiate recovery or people in marginalized populations, if collegiate recovery as a whole did a better job of one, uh, and I don't believe necessarily in diversity. Diversity could just mean the presence of marginalized folks, but not having power, but really being a more equitable and equal space for, for, for those students. So I said a lot, but there's a lot of work to be done in terms of really doing outreach and engagement to make sure collegiate recovery programs reflect one the larger recovery population out there. And we use and we have language that's not stigmatizing and understand that really this is life or death. It's, I don't even like to use the word stigma because it's too soft. It is literally a life or death situation, not just for those, for those, you know, white, well healed students who have access to insurance because it's hard enough in that case, but even those other students who have to navigate so many different systems in terms of being connected to a college and even being embraced by recovery and then understanding that college and recovery on campus could be a protective factor. So. Right. They're just starting from such a, a disadvantaged place that I don't even know how you start to tackle getting that message out. Is that something that that you guys work on as an institution or is there sort of a broader effort going on there? What's like, what could we be doing? I will say, honestly, one, some of the work that's being done, I know you, you were, you connected to Tim Revolt at, um, a, at ARHE. Um, and some of the people on the board, like Chantel Hammonds and, and, you know, Dr. CJ and so many other folks and, and John Michael Harris and so many other folks and Amy Boyd Austin, you know, it's, we've been intentional in making sure that one, as best we can, collegiate recovery spaces really honor and do justice for the most marginalized. And the thing that I carry is like, if you do work for the most marginalized folks, everybody benefits. Right. You right. know what I mean? Like we don't, we don't recognize that really like, like AA and NA were programs that started because of ableism, because Bill W felt like uh, in AA, he didn't have a space. You know, he didn't get treatment. He felt like he had to be anonymous because people who were alcoholics, when he was getting his help, they, they were obviously beyond stigmatized, but, you know, they got ridiculous treatment. They were ostracized, thrown in jail. And he said, you know, we need to start our own society. And, and at some point, the idea of like, AA and 12-step places and collegiate recovery just really just heaped on additional oppression to marginalize folks because they didn't feel like they were a part of. They couldn't talk about some of the other things because they were outside issues. Right. That, that's a whole another episode we could do. <laughs> yeah, that's, I kind of rambled, but it's, it's a lot. Yeah, of, no, I love it. It's a lot to unpack. Um, because is, we didn't get yeah. here in, in one day. It's really, yeah. really deconstructing a lot of our presuppositions and ideas of what, what health can be, 
what healing can be, um, like why, like are 12 steps included in any kind of treatment? Like it's not based on science. It was like a few people's good ideas and how that's become culturally accepted. You know, people going to like, like why? And that's, that's part of like what actually works and what's almost scientific. And then how do we build a society that really honors those who are most marginalized and so that everybody really ultimately benefits. Yeah, I love that's a that's such a good point is that it really does benefit everybody. It's kind of like it rises all tides and and so doing that work is hard. Mm-hmm. It's not that's not easy work. That's not just putting an ad out on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. That's that is really really hard work at deep levels and so I have huge respect for for you and for other people who are really bringing that to light because I think that is so important and maybe we'll have to do a whole nother episode on that because I know we're we're almost out of time but is there um so thank you for that I think that's that is a really important um, thing to talk about I guess kind of going back a little bit more to to collegiate recovery specifically is there something that you see all the time or assumptions that people make or a question that you get asked over and over and over that you just feel like man if I could just have a billboard (laughs) downtown to answer this once and for all is, is there something that that comes to mind for you that that you get all the time wow that's a big question wow i mean again i'm a visual person so i'm like picturing this billboard i would just want them to know that like i guess there's hope beyond severe substance use disorders like you can resolve your issues um yeah i yeah and, and it's because it's just not big enough no, but it is. I think that's the, in this uh, field, it is, it's so hard. And I, and I struggle with the same thing. I feel for you because I, I struggle with the same thing with the moms in my community. I tell them, I just wish that you could have met my son five or six years ago. And then when I tell you that there's hope, it would make so much more sense, you know, because they look at their mm-hmm. kid and they think there's no way. And, and so I think it is important to just say, yes, there is. And it sounds so, like you want it to be bigger and you want it to be fluffier and, you know, sexier, but <laughs> it's kind of like you just have to trust the people that have been there. And, you know, I haven't even been through it, but to hear from somebody like you or from somebody else who has lived it to say, it is true. It really is true that it, it can get better. You know what I want to say? There's no shame in addiction. Mm. That's what I would want to say. There's no shame. Yeah. How long did it take you to get there to say that? Um, I guess, you know what, honestly, when I realized it was like life or death and the need to keep up appearances about people from getting help, mm. you know, and, and and I think that's the thing that underlies a lot of the stigma and the pain that people have is this, this idea yeah. of, of, of hiding, that they can't talk about it, or that there's something defective about them, you know, and having, you know, and, and even families, like, what did you do wrong? Or like, like, how could you, you know, because there's such a moral thing attached to it. And all the things, you know, society deems unacceptable, or that don't look good, but they have nothing to do with, with science or, or health or what really works for folks, you know? So 
I think that's the thing. Yeah. And that's important for parents to hear too is, um, you know, you didn't create this problem and, and there's no shame in, in getting help. There's no shame in, in pulling resources together for your child. And it's, uh, you're right until you get to that point where you realize this is a, this is, and I, and I try to refer to it as a, as a life threatening illness. You know, your child has a life threatening Mm -hmm. illness and if if this was a brain tumor, would you be you know ashamed and making phone calls and whispering and not talking about it? No, you would be out there pounding the pavement and yelling and screaming, "I need help for my kids." So, I think that's that's a really that's a really good tip to think about it that way. Yeah. Well, I think that this has just been so incredibly helpful and so many parents are going to have their eyes opened to something that they probably, they either thought it was off the table for them um, or for their child, or now they're going to actually spend a little bit of time doing some research. So how would somebody find out the information about your program? Would they just go to the records website or what would be the best way to, to find you and, and what you do? The best way to do it is at least to find the Rutgers program. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put two things. One, collegiaterecovery.org, and that's, that's um, the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. That's the website. And that website offers all of the collegiate recovery programs, or at least all of our members, and about 180, I believe, across the country. So, and they, they pop up and they, need, they have contact people to talk to. Um, that's one good resource. Resource and then for for Rutgers Recovery House, I'd say just Google it because it's in it's in student affairs under student health, so you have to navigate a few things. But if you just <laughs> right. if you Google Rutgers Recovery House, it'll come up. That's the okay. best way awesome. to do it. Yeah, and and that's good to know that there is a kind of a a clearinghouse website, I guess you could call it, just to to find maybe you live on the West Coast or wherever and you're looking for for something. So that's good to know. And I'll put all that in the show notes for people as well. I might even include the Prince podcast in the show notes for people just in case. Sure, Brenda, this is my pleasure. I'm glad, you know, for my first podcast, it was with you. It was good. Oh, good, good. Well, I will let you go and get off to your weekend, but thank you so much. Okay, thank you. And again, it was a pleasure. Keep doing what you're doing. This is really good. Okay, did I tell you that he was just a, an amazing person and then also just so much good information and best of all, a lot of hope and encouragement for those of us who really want to see our kids continue their education even through some of the struggles and challenges that they've had. So hit the show notes for all of the resources and information about Collegiate Recovery, the association, about Keith and his program. Um, They will all be there at my website, brendazane.com. And if you have just a few seconds right now and would be so generous to tap on the podcast app wherever you're listening and just rate and review Hope Stream. That helps more families find this information. And also, if you are a mama who is wondering who else is listening to this podcast, because there must be other moms out there and dads as well, you can go to my website, brendazane.com forward slash the stream and learn about a private 
community where you will get tons of support and love while you're going through this difficult time. I look forward to seeing you here again next week.